Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dad, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, nothing much. Honestly, just really exhausted. <laughs> Last week was, um, it was a really busy week with data collection. And, mm. and I was waking up er- early every morning, which I don't do. I'm, I'm a type <laughs> of person. I wake up late. Um, and then I would be in the field until like 7 or 8 o'clock at night. And, mm. you know, instead of coming home like a normal person who's tired and, and mm. getting some rest, I would stay up to like two or three o'clock in the morning watching reruns of Ninety Day Fiance. Before oh, I like I was addicted. Like I would, I would literally lay there. My eyes would be hurting. They would blush out red. Like I would be so sleepy, <laughs> not turn away. Like I could, Yo, you don't have a DVR or like. A... No, I do. I was watching it on Xfinity. Like I. Oh, <laughs> so you can come back to it. Yeah. But it was just like, oh, babe, if I just finish this episode. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm not gonna lie though, that show does get you hooked though. Like as Kristen and I, we watch it and but we don't we watch it like live, so it's not like the marathons. But I could imagine trying to watch that as a marathon, yeah. Yeah. You will be hooked. I mean, I'm watching this current season live. Um, okay. but I missed the last one that was like before the ninety days when they follow like Paul back to uh Brazil, oh like, so it was that I had missed that so yeah mm. you know my brother was because he watches the show too and he was telling me that their Paul and them are not going to be on um the next season or whatever oh I wonder because he said they were kicked off uh because I don't know something like they were the producers found out they were lying about certain things and stuff like that and just being dishonest oh man like they were doing some things for the money okay um, and then I think my brother said they made like a little plea somewhere like or created some post or a blog trying to like get them back on the show. I don't know. Something like that. I don't know. They they That couple was real entertaining. <laughs> but I guess I have to follow them on social media. And even this season, um, uh, wait, this is which was what season? Before the 90 days? No, this is. No, yeah. this is the regular one. The 90 days. Oh, yeah. This is the 90 days with the dude. Yo, this what you watch. So you watch him with the guy who's in Vegas who lives with his mom. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I do. The, oh, oh my goodness, that would be crazy. Uh, be like Colty, Colty. <laughs> oh man, that to me that's one of the funniest stories, man. Like, yeah, it is. It is. He's, he's like a little creeper to me, but whatever. Man. <laughs> <laughs> what you been up to? Uh, Nothing much. I mean, similar to you, man. I've been busy because uh, the search. We've been bringing in our candidates, so. That you know, that's been hectic, but good at the same time because we're moving along and finally about to close up. We got two more coming in this week. Um, so all that, like I said, all that logistics and stuff and travel and yada yada yada, it takes up a lot of time. And plus, being on campus on days that I'm normally not on campus because the, the candidates are there, mm. but it's the last week and it's the last week of classes as well. Oh, nice. So uh, I am <laughs> just looking forward to getting past these next five days. Oh, you can do it. You can you can make it through. Winter break. See it. See it right there. See the light. <laughs> All right. Um, so we got some old Lord news, I'm assuming. Yes, we do. All right. Let's get into it. Hello. 
and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening Oh Lord News of the Week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Okay, so so speaking of being on campus, we have another uh, existing while black story. So visiting professor Caitlin Cherry uh, was sitting in her classroom uh, before a class started. She was eating her lunch. Uh, A white professor peeks his head in and looks, but doesn't say anything. Probably like five or 10 minutes later, campus security comes into the room and starts questioning who is she, why is she here, and et cetera. So this, so this the visiting professor was black? Yes, the visiting professor is a black woman. Eating lunch. Eating lunch. Eating and the lunch. cops come Yes. And she has security called on her. And so, you know, she was suspicious. Like, I think it was that guy. And come to find out, it was definitely the professor, um, the associate professor, white associate professor, who called security on her, but has not given a reason or a rationale for why sitting down eating lunch in your classroom is enough to uh, call security. That is wild. That is wild, man. And it's like being in that position, like as the visiting professor, and I just try to put myself there. It's like, how do you address stuff like that? It's upsetting, frustrating, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you how, do you want you want to maybe want to confront this other person, you know, mm-hmm. or settle this dispute? And are there resources for that? Because I'd be upset, you know. I just <laughs> well, the the university has uh, stood behind her as well as graduate students. So the the professor who did it, his graduate TA quit on him Mm. uh the students have stopped going to his classes they said that you know he won't be teaching for the rest of the semester of course the semester is pretty much over now but students stopped going to his class the ta quit and they've been posting like even like signs and posters like we support caitlin cherry okay okay good 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 that that'll that'll make feel better yeah having that kind of support instead of being alienated um, Shame on him. <laughs> He's technically Peruvian, but I think he is white. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so he is an ethnic. He has an ethnic. Well, everybody has an ethnic background, but you know, saying that he is an ethnic person, um, but of a lighter complexion. Like I don't even understand why. Like if you just, I, I even try to put my put put myself in in this guy's shoes, and it's like even if I see somebody who I'm not familiar with. But there's just sitting down and eating. I'm not. Why would I call the police or security? Like, it's not even doing anything suspicious, you know. It's like I'm well, sitting down and eating. Is suspicious, like, you know. Like, like, maybe the food was funky. He was like, I need to get her out of here. <laughs> maybe, maybe the food was too seasoned. Yeah, so that's probably what it was. <laughs> I don't know, but she was just like, you know, it would have been nice if, you know, just thinking like, even if I, if even if, even if you didn't think I was a professor, like why couldn't I be one of the many graduate students or, or any student just sitting in the building? Like, why do I look suspicious? Yeah, uh, that's sick. Okay. 
So speaking of suspects or or being suspicious, a New Orleans man was arrested um, and charged after going to a restaurant and threatening to blow it up. Now, you might ask yourself, (laughs) well, of course he deserves to be arrested. Well, come to find out when he said he was going to blow the restaurant up, he was referencing what he was about to do in the bathroom. He was about to blow the bathroom up. And yo, he really did get arrested and and charged with like making threats, uh, planning an arson. Like and he's like, yo, I was I was talking about a bowel movement. That is wild. You know, when I heard that story, I was laughing so hard. I was like, yo, this can't be real. This cannot be, but it's kind of like I don't, I don't know. Like people do use that phrase, so I you believe him. I believe, yeah, I believe him too. I don't think you would try to really blow up a bat, like blow up a restaurant like that. Oh, yeah, I give yeah. him the benefit of doubt. I give him the pass on that one. Okay, They're just taking the wrong way. But I guess we got to be careful of the the terms we use. You got to be, I guess, more politically correct as far as how you want to talk about your bowel movements in these days. <laughs> yeah, and I mean it's a little TMI anyway. But yeah, definitely watch the way you say it. I, <laughs> I'll be praying for my brother. Uh, you know, funny. this next story is also a crazy story. So on November 10th, 2018, a mother held a memorial service for her daughter, Brittany Webster. She said that Brittany was called to finish her story on October 27th and that she was meeting all of the loving animals on the other side of the rainbow. The only issue with the story is her daughter wasn't dead. What? Yes. The mother faked her daughter's death. Oh, my God. She said that her daughter died in a car crash on October 27th, and she did it to trick people into giving her donations. Oh, my goodness. That is terrible. And it wasn't just like this small vigil, like literally they held a full memorial service at Ferguson Heights Church of Christ. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And they had a repast and speeches and everything. And so then like when the daughter found out because someone sent her obituary to her, uh, you know, she she alerted all, you know, she alerted the church and everybody that had donated um, that like. How old was the daughter? I think she's like 20, 21, 21. Oh what? <laughs> That's insane. I'm thinking at first, I'm thinking like it was a small child, like no. she was trying to hide, you know, whatever. But your grown child ain't going to, you think they're going to find out? Like she's going to pop back up? So the issue is the mother and daughter didn't live in the same city. And the daughter mm-hmm. wasn't even raised by her mother. Her mother's, oh. you know, had issues with drugs and, and other things. So, mm-hmm. you know. I don't know. You got to watch out for these GoFundMe's and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Damn Yeah. See, this is yeah. This is what gives all that stuff a bad a bad rep. People mm-hmm. like this. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's insane. All right. Um, and for for our final story, which you know kind of gets to our topic um, a little bit. Um, so, a 21 year old Kansas man uh, was accused of rape and aggravated indecent liberties against a child. Um, and this is kind of old lord because he tried to use his state's abortion statute 
that claims that life begins at fertilization in order to get his charges uh, like dropped down because he argued that because life begins at fertilization, his victim was actually 16 and not 15. Therefore, she was the age of consent. That's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, it, you know, didn't, no one bought it. Uh, But it was just crazy that he tried to use that statute as a way to defend against what he had done against this minor. Yeah. That's sick. Well, yeah. I mean, I've heard people say, ask them kind of like riddle questions, you know. Like, are you really, how come you're zero or something when you're born? Yeah. <clears throat> when you've been in there. But, but no, nah, it's not going to play up in that case, buddy. Legally. It's yeah. just not how it works. That's crazy. Legally. And, you know, hopefully, you know, he faces consequences for um, his, oh, his yeah. actions, which oh, were yeah. really serious. He will. Yeah, courts don't play with that kind of stuff at all. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, any other old little news? Um, yes, we'd like to say uh, rest in peace to George Herbert Walker Bush, who passed uh, away. Yes. Um, but also for uh, our Old Lord News, we'd also like to revisit uh, an Old Lord News story that we had in the past about Botham Jean. He was shot in, in Dallas by a police officer, Amy Geiger. Um, and this is more of like a Yes Lord News you know, praising him uh, because she was just indicted on uh, murder charges in Dallas. Yes. That's really good news. Um, again, because we've seen these cases time and time again and all the times we try to hope for the best and usually these police officers get it, get off, especially when grand juries are involved. But in this time, looks like the grand jury did the right thing, indicted this officer for murder, not manslaughter, which is good, which is key. Because of manslaughter, it is a lesser charge, and it also signifies that there was some that the victim provoked the assailant in some way. But this is just not the case. The guy was home, police officer was off duty, should be treated as this regular civilian, not as a police officer. So I do believe murder is the proper charge. Hopefully, it sticks. Mm-hmm. We'll see how it goes. Um, because you know, if she cops a plea or anything like that, it may be reduced to something like manslaughter. But um. The charge, the right charges are on the table to say the least. And so let's, yeah. let's keep our eye on this moving forward. Yeah. My my thing is I always hope that even when they do put murder on the tabor, table, they allow for some lesser charges. Cause I, I I don't want like the Zimmerman thing to ever happen again. That we get the the charge that we want, but then it's kind of like, oh, well, we felt like it was maybe less than that or or different than that. And, you know, the person gets completely off because the jury doesn't buy that specific charge. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that the grand jury pushed it means that there's, especially going against a police officer, pretty sure there's going to be some, there's some solid evidence that, you know, because this is rare. So I just, I just think that uh, we're going to see some good stuff come out of it, hopefully. But yeah, you're right. We don't want to see that Zimmerman type thing again. But it's hard. To, is this In this case, it's just so hard to say manslaughter because it's just like the guy was not doing anything yeah, wrong. He was, he was in his apartment. Nobody called the police. There wasn't a disturbance. You know, you knocked on his door. 
and he opened it and you shot him. So I, 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 it's a really tough to, to, to say, you know, that it's not murder. That's if, true. Any, if any other civilian did it. And I think that's what the prosecution has to just keep in mind. Make sure the jury views her as a civilian, not a police officer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You don't get those privileges. You were not on duty. Off duty. So take that away. Strip that completely away. But yeah, we'll keep that. We'll keep uh, keep an eye on that and update you as as that progresses um, down the line. Other than that, uh, we'll make a quick announcement. So because the holidays are approaching us and we know many of you will be enjoying time with family, friends, travel, et cetera, or just relaxing, um, you know, we still have tons of interviews and interviews that we'll be, you know, collecting. We still have some in the bank and we do that every week, but Daphne and I decided that during the holiday season, we're still going to release episodes, but we're going to do once a week still, but we're going to, we're going to be like more, small, mini 30 minute episodes of Oh Lord news segments and minor current event things that are going on um, just so that we know and then we'll bring we'll bring back to the interview format and stuff like that in the beginning of the new year uh, so just keep that in mind you know as you all are enjoying the holidays continue to tune in and listen to us there'll just be shorter episodes with Daphne and I and maybe we'll bring on a couple guests a couple friends to to chat with us about some things we'll see um, but just wanted to keep you guys or let you know about that as well moving forward yes yes mm-hmm. And today's interview, uh, which will be a, our last interview for about a month or so, is with Dr. Carolyn West. Um, we're talking to her about particularly sexual assault, sexual assault uh, in the black community, sexual assault in general, mm-hmm. and also her unique research agenda by looking at uh, pretty much how black women are perceived in uh, pornography as well, which is a really unique topic and sheds some interesting light on how those images actually shape, uh, like the images of black women in the media, particularly in pornography, can be linked to things like sexual assault, sexual sexualizing them and the depictions of these of these images. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I appreciated the discussion of her link, um, you know, the discussion of her documentary, um, which I, you know, hope in the future uh, you all will get to to see. Um, but it's a very interesting discussion. And I'm happy that we are able to contextualize it and talk about it within the context of the black community, because sometimes uh, the Me Too movement, um, it has been um very uh, powerful over the last year and a half. Uh, but I also feel like sometimes the the stories and the voices and the experiences of Black women aren't fully captured in the movement. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm happy to have this discussion. Yep. Isn't it true the Me Too movement was started by a Black woman, right? I, I do believe so. I do believe I so. But, that. you know, when we think about, um, you know, who gets charged and, you know, just like some of the dynamics that we'll actually talk about um, in the the interview. But when we talk about some of the dynamics, uh, sometimes Me Too doesn't always work out the same way for Black women. So. It doesn't. And and that, that also reminds me of um, this current issue, too, that I'll talk about real quickly is uh, with the Chiefs running back, Kareem Hunt. Did you hear about that? Oh, yeah. He was just caught on tape. uh Doing something. I didn't read the entire story. But yeah, I saw the so headline. he was, um, um, you know, they said video, He, you know, TMZ and the headline said a video of him brutalizing a woman. Um, and, you know, it was, so again, it was hotel footage, similar to what we've seen before. This happened way back in February, mm-hmm. but the, they somehow, I think TMZ or somebody got the, the video footage of it um, in the past couple of days. And uh, the video, he's in the hallway, him and a couple of other guys, a couple of other girls. 
him and the girl were face to face. Apparently she slaps him. Then he tries to like get at her. He pushes her. Everybody gets in between, like holding him back, holding him back. And he keeps trying to go at her. And eventually she's on the ground. Then he like kicks her while he's on the ground. And he gets like pulled away. Um, So it's a pretty crazy video. And he got kicked off the team um, also. But other teams are already looking at him um, as well. But, you know, it's, it's sad when we see these things. I mean, he's 23 years old. Very, very good running back, like not like a bench, like whack player. He's actually a really, really good player. Um, and so it's sad when we see these kind of things happening, but it goes and thinks the whole thing's about assault, especially when it's taken seriously, who is taken seriously for when it's highlighted and all this kind of stuff, especially when we have these cases in the NFL mm-hmm. and the cover ups. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that could be linked to this too. Just wanted to mention that. I, uh, I just want to say, and this is another topic for another day, but is it not crazy? that in the NFL you can assault people and women and you know although you're cut people will still look at you but if you take a knee you gone for good mm-hmm. I, I yeah that's that that. <laughs> that is you right <laughs> you are so right right like teams are already look he just got cut teams are already looking at him like the, the, Was- the Washington Redskins out of all the teams who need to change their name as it is too um but that you're right, right? You can do that, and another team will pick you right up. But you take a knee for police brutality, mm-mm. Mm-hmm. We'll handle that. But, you know, we'll look, we'll side-eye you kicking a woman on the ground. That's crazy. Yeah. NFL is so sick, man. It's a lot of work. Yeah. But anyway, uh, ready to get into this interview with Dr. West? I am. All right, we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. Over the past year, the Me Too movement has created an important dialogue around sexual assault and the culture of silence that enables sexual abuse and violence to thrive. Today, BHD joins the conversation and focuses explicitly on sexual assault and violence in the Black community by interviewing Dr. Carolyn West, an award-winning author and professor of psychology at the University of Washington. During the interview, Dr. West provides insight into what constitutes sexual assault, the history of sexual violence against Black women, the factors that shape disclosure, and how pornographic images of Black women cause harm and contribute to the current culture around sexual assault and violence. Welcome, Dr. West. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thanks yes, for being a part of this. Very before. happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we usually like to start these conversations by just uh, helping our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So uh, can you tell us about yourself, your work, uh, and what sparked your interest in researching, writing, and speaking about sexual assault and intimate partner violence? Oh, a number of things. A little bit about my background. Uh, I received my bachelor's degree and my master's degree in psychology from the University of Missouri in St. Louis. And then after completing a postdoctoral uh, internship, uh, well, pre-doctoral internship at the University of Notre Dame, uh, I received my PhD from the University of Missouri in St. Louis. Uh, then after that, I completed a, a postdoctoral teaching and clinical fellowship at Illinois State University and a research postdoctoral fellowship at the University of New Hampshire uh, in the family uh, research laboratory there. So spent quite a bit of time uh, doing research on intimate partner violence and sexual assault. Oh, nice. Um, so, you know... <clears throat> 
with today's current atmosphere and especially with the recent movements like the Me Too movement um, in particular, you know, we've seen a lot of conversations about sexual assault and violence. Um, but we've also seen many questions about what actually constitutes sexual sexual assault, right? What what defines it? What does it look like? And there can be some confusion about it. Um, so from your research, from your experience, you know, can you give insight into that question of what exactly is sexual assault for our listeners? I think we have to take a broader view of what sexual assault is. I mean, at the basic core, it's any kind of sexual contact without consent um, of the survivor. But oftentimes, you know, when we think about sexual violence, we think about the extreme forms uh, such as rape. So uh, penile vaginal intercourse that's perpetrated by force. But I think what we tend to overlook is that it's also sexual contact that's perpetrated by intimidation or threats or just the inability to give consent because you're passed out or you're drunk. We also don't often see things like child sexual abuse that's perpetrated by a stranger or within the family. We don't see uh, sometimes date and acquaintance rape uh, that occurs within intimate relationships. We don't oftentimes see marital rape uh, that's perpetrated by a longtime intimate partner. Uh, We don't see like sexual violence that happens like within academic settings. So like academic sexual harassment, or we don't see sexual violence that's perpetrated sometimes by a supervisor or a boss, or we don't see sexual trafficking in our communities. We don't see sexual harassment when women are just going about their daily lives. So there's a lot of different forms of sexual violence. And I think we have to think broadly about what that means. And I think that they're particularly in the lives of African-American women. Uh, there's all forms of invisible sexual violence that nobody talks about. Mm, I like I like the word that you used mm-hmm. invisible um, because I feel like the the Me Too movement has done a good job of just uncovering the blind spots around um, sexual assault and violence and what we don't know and what we are confused about. And so that's why I'm really happy that we have this conversation and we can talk about the broader umbrella of sexual assault and, you know, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I, I know, or I've, I've seen a lot of conversations, um, about like sexual assault in the contemporary moment. Um, but it's kind of like this, this isn't just happening now. And a lot of the incidents that we now hear about, you know, happened 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. 40 years ago, and people are just now talking about it. So I wanted to know, can you provide some insight into the history of sexual assault, you know, and focusing particularly on the black community Mm -hmm. and how it shapes the contemporary experiences of women um, and also black men. Oh, absolutely. And I think, again, that's uh, there's a quote that I really like that says, you know, history would become all that men did during the day, but nothing of what they did during the night. 
And so when we, we, we sort of overlook history as if all of what we're seeing is new and we don't understand that it comes, a lot of the social problems that we're seeing have deep historical roots. So I'm, I'm glad that you wanted to talk a little bit about the history because I think it's important to remember like this, it's an institutional pattern of rape. It's not an individual pattern, but it's really an institutional and structural pattern of rape that was established before like newly enslaved Africans even reached the Americans. So during the transatlantic voyage, you know, crew members routinely raped and impregnated women and then just in preparation for sale, they were put on auction blocks, stripped naked and just sold. And their economic value was based on their ability to reproduce. And so understanding that deep sexual trauma um, is really important. So their value was based on their ability to produce healthy offspring. And so sexual assault was a part of that trauma because you had to continuing, continue to produce enslaved people. And that happened oftentimes through sexual violence perpetrated by other enslaved men and slaveholders and uh, anyone could sexually assault black women. Mm. You know, kind of thinking about even what we recently seen with the whole Kavanaugh situation mm. and the discussion with that and and even with Dr. Ford and her coming forward, you know, one of the big things that I heard in a lot of discussions was, you know, why did it take so many years for her to come forward or discuss what happened? Um, so can you discuss some of the factors that, you know, shape disclosure and victims coming forward to tell their stories and, and why oftentimes, you know, women may not be believed in these situations and just, mm -hmm. you know, that whole, that whole kind of scenario and situation, what we witnessed. That was so powerful to watch that. And I teach a course on family violence here at the University of Washington. I also teach a course on sexual violence and sex crimes and a course on the psychology of Black women. And we talk about disclosure patterns around sexual violence in all of those courses. And I think it's pretty simple and straightforward why women don't um, disclose. I mean, think about her experience uh, when she was when she was willing to disclose. You're not believed. You're blamed. People uh, victim blame. They shame survivors. It's almost like you're in a double bind because if you immediately come forward, you may not be believed. And then if you delay in your reporting, then people say, well, why did you wait so long? So it's almost like you can't, you almost cannot believe, you can't win uh, with these situations. But that said, um, people don't disclose because there's fear of not being believed or blamed. There's also when you disclose, if you have a negative reaction, 
that certainly prevents future disclosure. Uh, In particular, Black women don't disclose because, again, it goes back to historical factors. For most of our country's history, rape against Black women was not even seen as a criminal offense. Uh, So for most of our country's history, Black women were not even rapable. Mm. You know, I was... uh... You talk about like the history and one pattern I kind of noticed um, is that if a black woman comes forward and um, the alleged perpetrator is a black man, there is often kind of backlash because it is seen Uh as, um, you know, I guess perpetrating something negative against black men as a whole or Mm -hmm. um, using the system, a system that's already against black men, but like using that against them. Um, Mm -hmm. Have you know, in your teachings and your research, have you noticed that? I don't know. That is kind of used as a a tool to kind of keep black women from Coming forward, especially if the person that they would be uh, reporting is a black male. Oh, certainly. There is this almost conspiracy of silence, I think, in our 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 community where it's you're almost encouraged not to talk about it. I think. And again, that's rooted in history, too, because historically black men face, you know, lynching, murder, incarceration, a whole host of things if they were accused of sexually assaulting white women. And that's a deep part of our history. And I think we still kind of live with the legacy of that with like Emmett Till, for example, or what happened with the Central Park uh, uh, accused rapist who in fact did not sexually assault that jogger. But this kind of fear that we have to protect African-American men from a system that has been, has targeted them uh, sometimes unfairly and stereotyped them as rapists. But at the same time, most sexual assaults are intra-racial. So you're more likely to be sexually assaulted by someone of your own race. And so Black women are oftentimes socialized to believe that because of that history, it's more important to uh, protect African-American men from a, a racist system, not reinforce these stereotypes that black men are inherently sexually violent. So we're black women oftentimes in a situation where they're literally taking sides against themselves and they just remain silent about the sexual assaults. You know, this, I guess, um, you know, and this may be a straightforward question, but I, I kind of just want to ask it when it comes to just, I feel like there's a lot of stress involved when, you know, um, <clears throat> Especially when people are just one, just being a, a black, being a black woman, right, and everyday stress is associated uh-huh. with that. But also when things like sexual assault are attached and, and happen and are experienced in these communities, 
what are, are there like some kind of major, I guess, physiological issues as well, or things that are linked to these kind, this kind of trauma that may go unnoticed, particularly with the black community more than others or just, or just in general? I think there is a lot of intergenerational trauma that we're dealing with that hasn't really been explored or talked about. And so in other words, if you have hundreds of years of people dealing with physical violence, emotional violence, uh, the violence that was associated with Jim Crow, the lynchings, uh, et cetera, and people don't have a, a place or a space to process that information, it just gets passed down almost in our DNA, it seems. And so I think that there's a lot of unresolved grief and trauma that hasn't been talked about that shapes how we deal, how contemporary African-Americans deal with violence today. Um, I mean, enslaved women had to take the secret of their sexual violence to the grave with them or they could go to the grave for revealing the sexual violence. There was no one for them to to disclose their sexual violence to. So it's just been a pattern of you just don't talk about it. And that adversely impacts people's mental health. So so before we begin to have a conversation about the documentary, which is really great and fascinating, I did want to uh, bring a question to you. And, you know, it might not be um, your expertise, but maybe you know something about it is one one thing that I've noticed uh, about these conversations is it 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 doesn't talk about the experiences that men have with sexual assault and violence. Um, And I you know, I have no facts about this. I believe it happens, but I don't, I don't know if any, if most men would actually talk about it. So, you know, are there any, is there any research or statistics about, you know, the prevalence of sexual assault and and violence against men or boys? There is a national intimate partner sexual violence survey has looked at that, uh, generally, the rates certainly are much lower than they are for black women. I mean, we look at national surveys about uh, 21% of black women have been raped after age 18 at some point in their lives. And about 38% have experienced other types of sexual violence. Uh, the numbers for African-American men and men in general tends to be lower, but we do know uh, the the samples find something like one in 71 men will be victims of a sexual violence. Uh, About one in five women, for example, will be uh, victims of sexual violence. So we know that men are, but that's millions of men. Uh, and we're not talking about that. Uh, so it's not that it doesn't happen, but they tend to disclose at much lower rates. And what I was pleased to see, uh, Terry Crews, for example, uh, the actor talking about being sexually victimized mm-hmm. uh, in his professional work. So I think that 
that men and particularly black men are having those conversations or at least willing to publicly disclose. And I think that's a good thing. Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it is. I, I can also think of like, um, uh, Charlemagne, the God recently, well, mm. in his book, I think it was in black privilege where he kind of first addressed it, but I think also multiple times on the air where he realized, I think he was getting, uh, molested or something like that by an, an, aunt, mm. an aunt when he was younger and didn't really know it until just a few years ago after, you know, realized what happened to him and what it was actually defined as, um, and, mm. and the impacts of that. And he's been kind of out and open about that as well, you know, to, to share that story, mm. to say that, hey, it happens in our community too. And it happens to black men, um, maybe not as much, but, you know, it should be at least raising awareness on it for sure. You know, Mike Tyson mm -hmm. talked on a radio uh interview a couple of years back about being raped by a stranger on the street. Mm. Uh, he also, as we know, was convicted of sexually assaulting a, a beauty contestant uh, and served time in prison for that. So I think we have to have more complex discussions to understand that people can be both simultaneously victims and uh uh, possible perpetrators as well. Mm -hmm. How do you think, how do you think, just again, another question is coming to mind as we, ha as we just talked about this, how do we think we should navigate this? Right. Cause even, um, you know, I, I, I focus on criminology and criminal justice. And so mm -hmm. one of the things I like to do with my students is, you know, we, we, when we hear about people who are incarcerated, uh, men and women, I like to provide context to their stories and their life narratives and, mm -hmm. and see, and a lot of the times, the, one of the biggest trends that students realize is that many of the people who are incarcerated did experience some kind of trauma um, mm -hmm. throughout their life, whether it was like sexual abuse or any other kind of abuse, right, or violence. And then, you know, maybe have enacted those same kind of crimes later in life. So as a society, if we know that, you know, trauma can be the root causes of some of the behaviors we see, um, you know, are, are there ways, should we still be as punitive, do you think, with the criminal justice system when they, when these kind of cases arise, when we figure or we see that somebody has a life history of trauma that may have led into these behaviors? Should we be softer? Should we still punish? I'm just curious as far as like, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, occasionally, I do expert witness uh, testimony okay. with women who have killed perpetrators uh, you know, men who had battered them and then they later uh, kill those perpetrators. And I always start off with looking at adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they're extensive. And we know how people sort of end up in these situations. There are usually these very traumatic uh, childhoods that they're experiencing, uh, substance abuse uh, from parents, having a parent incarcerated, being a victim of physical or emotional abuse or neglect, um, living in very violent, dangerous neighborhoods. I think part of it is intervening early in the lives of people who have those experiences uh, certainly would help. And using that to mitigate um, once they've done something horrible. So it doesn't mean that you don't get held accountable, uh, but it means that we also have to um, look at why they've done 
what they've done. Instead of asking what's wrong with people, be more trauma-informed and asking, well, what happened to this person to make them be the person that they are? Mm, I like that. Instead of what's wrong, what happened? Mm -hmm. I like that. Uh, And this whole conversation reminds me of um, just like restorative justice principles, Mm -hmm. you know, acknowledging that the victim, you know, or the perpetrator, uh, alleged perpetrator could also be a victim Mm -hmm. and how it's, it's not this just straightforward thing is, you know, it's a lot of gray area. Yeah. Yeah. That it really reflects how society has also failed too. And seeing this not as an individual problem or failure, but really a structural and societal failure as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in thinking about um, the, the larger society and, you know, its role in, in shaping some of these um, outcomes or, or some of these situations that happen, you know, a large part of our society is the media and what we consume and the images that we see. And I know you're working on a project about the images of Black women, um, not just in the media, but particularly within pornography. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that project and why it is important to explore these images. Like, why does it matter, especially within the context of this larger conversation? You know, I I sort of accidentally became a pornography researcher. I've always looked, I've always been very uh, fascinated Uh, by media images in the psychological impact uh, that has on individuals. So I've written extensively about um, images like the Mammy image, uh, the Sapphire angry Black woman image, and this kind of Jezebel uh, sexually um, permissive image and the impact. And a couple of years ago, some colleagues and myself started an academic journal called Sexualization Media and Society, where we wanted to explore those images in detail. And several of my colleagues were doing research on pornography. And I asked, well, is anybody looking at race, the, the intersection of race and and sexual violence and sexism, sexism and pornography? And, and nobody really was. And I was doing presentations on the topic, and I came across a, a, a porn video that came out in the 1980s called Let Me Tell You About Black Chicks. And it was one of the first like commercially available interracial porn video that was taken off the market because uh, they had a scene where two Ku Klux Klan members were having... Uh, anal, oral, and vaginal intercourse with this Black woman and were using some racial slurs, you can still find that video online, though. And I started to really delve into how are these images different? I mean, pornography sexualizes everybody, and some of the images are offensive, but how is it really different for African-American women? And that's what prompted me to sort of look at this in more detail. Mm. So I guess maybe talk a little bit about as far as the research, like how did you, you know, compare or kind of build the data to, to build your analysis on this topic? Well, what I started doing is that there is a website, there are numerous websites that um, 
feature pornographic uh, videos and the video covers and the description of the performers. And thus far, I'm working with a group of students, a team of students, and we're looking at 4,000 images or the front and back covers going back about 20 years. And we're looking at how those images have changed or have not changed over time. Um, what, how are the women described? Uh, what are the most common sexual activities? Uh, what are some of the degrading terms that are used for the women? Uh, and how things have changed or not over like the last couple of decades. Mm. And so that's the data set we're using. And these are all mainstream, um, mainstream movie images. Okay, okay. Mm, that's really fascinating. So I, I guess kind of going back to the uh, the history piece and, you know, you talked about the, you know, auction blocks and, you know, how, you know, reproduction was at the, the forefront of, you know, some of the sexual assault and violence that women experienced in the past. And I was just wondering is the are the images that we see over the last 20 years, which you're, you're focused on, are the images we see in pornography connected to the history? In what way does history inform? Um, yeah. How how black women are portrayed um, in these movies? Yeah. And so I would always argue that, you know, pornography is nothing new. It just really just amplifies uh, the history that's always been there. And so what I've found certainly over time is that, you know, as I talked about before, for most of this country's history, sexually assaulting Black women was not illegal or seen as a crime. So, you know, pornography sort of puts a spin on that and it sanitizes and sexualizes that history and takes it out of historical context. So in other words, let me tell you about black chicks. When there's a scene of Ku Klux Klan members and it looks like the woman is enjoying this, on one hand, you can argue, well, it's just like a movie. It's just made up, but it kind of takes it out of historical context. In fact, that black women were routinely raped after slavery ended by these these vigilante groups like the Ku Klux Klan, and they were routinely lynch men and lynch women as well, but they would sexually assault uh, black women. And when black women worked in white households, for example, uh, after slavery ended as domestics, they were routinely sexually assaulted. So, you know, pornography sort of sexualizes that or makes that seem as like not a form of trauma, but that that black women were so sexually insatiable that they would uh, sleep with anybody, including Ku Klux Klan members. So history is definitely, you'll see um, interracial videos with uh, white men dressed in Confederate flags and using racial slurs or black women drinking out of dog bowls or with chains or nooses around their necks. So it's really just a continuation of the sexual violence that we've seen throughout history. Mm. You know, that's interesting, Um, you know. So seeing these images and, you know, even from the historical perspective, things in pornography, um, even within, you know, the documentary, uh, you know, I remember 
and even just growing up, seeing this myself amongst my peers, you know, like uh, BET Uncut and the images oh, yeah. uh, with like within musical videos and actually setting aside a specific time to have more explicit uh, videos uh, mm-hmm. with, with black women in these situations. Um, so, you know, what are your thoughts on it? What are the are, are there real life consequences for these images on black girls and women um, because of these, you know, more ish, these dis- the display in the media and how they're be- being portrayed? I fear so. And again, I, you know, I'm not saying I want to be careful that I'm not like implying that we're like policing black women's sexuality because there are, and I won't like name specific rappers or anything like that, but I can see where some people would say that we've been so, our sexuality has been so controlled that there's almost no way to kind of, how do you have a healthy sexuality in the midst of this hundreds of years of these kind of negative stereotypes of black women? But I do fear that when you don't have other balanced, positive images to to balance that off, mm. it's harder for Black women to have a healthier sexuality or to be positive about their sexuality because they've never been sort of given the opportunity uh, to do that. But my fear about it, that said, my fear is that it makes it easier for us to overlook sexual violence and sexual trafficking that happens in our community. Uh, It makes it harder for women to disclose sexual violence because once they disclose, if the whole culture sees you as sexually promiscuous anyway, the sexual violence is then like dismissed or not taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a that's a that's a very mm-hmm. good point. Um, and I, I hadn't thought about that. And it, it seems like like you said, it's not taken seriously. It seems it could potentially shape the interactions that men black or white mm-hmm. have with black women if these images are you know promiscuous like you said the the Jezebel um and yeah we I think we have to think more carefully about that and like you said I think balancing images um I, I think that's important and so yeah there's nothing there's certainly nothing wrong with owning your sexuality being positive about your sexuality but my concern is when the only images that are available of black women are so narrowly defined that there is nothing else and that ends up not being healthy for anyone i mean georgetown law did a study a couple of years back called a girlhood interrupted and they asked just like general population what were their perceptions of black girls and then compared to white girls they saw them black girls even as young as age five or six as more knowledgeable about sex uh, needing less nurturing needing less support being more promiscuous so if adults are seeing black girls this way that if they disclose sexual violence, who's going to be really believe them or who's going to take it seriously. 
And so that really shapes um, their ability to get help. Mm, yeah. One one thing that I um, so I was, as I was watching the documentary um, and I was re- very interested in one part because we had a, you know, conversations earlier in the year um, about colorism. And so I was wondering, could you talk a little bit more about the role of colorism in, you know, the images and depictions of black women in pornography and, and even in the media more generally? Yeah, we're still seeing that. So we're basically colorism. It's this kind of hierarchy of beauty in which uh, women who are lighter skinned or who are closer to this white ideal of beauty are higher on the beauty hierarchy, seen as more attractive, more desirable. And you'll see that pattern just throughout the media in general and pornography as well where your lighter skinned black women are seen, they'll even be called more attractive. They'll be seen as perfect tens, whereas darker skinned black women uh, will be the most degrading stereotypes will be used to refer to them. They're called hoochies, hoes, uh, you know, nappy, nappy headed ho. I mean, just some of the horrible uh, terms that were used for them. If you remember a couple of years back when Don Imus called the Rutgers basketball team nappy-headed hoes, immediately pornography came out with a porn video of the same title, uh, disparaging Black women in that way. So there tends to be that kind of hierarchy of beauty where uh, darker-skinned Black women, particularly if they were overweight, uh, were seen at the very bottom of the beauty hierarchy in the most degrading terms used for them. Um, so, yeah, and I think, you know, even thinking about this relation to, because uh, quick I'm going to have a quick question about sex trafficking, but like pornography and the real life consequences, I thought of like a few years ago, I was able to have um, this kind of uh, some top FBI official come into class and talk about because he specialized in catching um, sex offenders, but largely online sex offenders dealing with children. And, you know, I, I remember one of mm. the things that, you know, he found was that I guess the overall, you know, I, the, the, I guess what comes to mind, the image of people or like online sex offenders that, that prey, prey on children um, are usually the image of maybe like some 50-year-old, you know, heavy-set, bald guy in the basement doing all this stuff on a computer. Um, but interestingly enough, what he was finding in the, and many of the people he were, was catching, many of the guys, they were actually pretty much young college, white college-age males. Um, and so the, mm. so the, the, I guess the profile um, has gotten a lot younger compared to what it used to be. And of course, naturally they do a lot of mm-hmm. interviewing and, and when they catch these guys and trying to figure out the, the trends and, and, and to catch more of them, see what's going on. And he said, overwhelmingly, mm-hmm. you know, even though he didn't do any research on this, but this is just one of the biggest factors that he's been finding when catching these guys that are so young is that um, the common trend is that they all were introduced to pornography at a very young age. And the, and the lasting impact, and I guess, impact of it having, you know, um, desensitizing them or having them crave for um, a more different kind of sexual appetite. I don't know what it is that led, led them to eventually preying on these young children and creating these these webs online that that do this. So I think there is this connection of like pornography, the images we see, and then also linked to things and crimes like sexual sex trafficking as well. Um, 
So is there anything, you know, mm-hmm. that I know we didn't really talk about sex trafficking along those lines, but, you know, are there things in that area that you would like to discuss or elaborate on for our listeners as well? I think that's an, another type of sexual violence that tends to be overlooked uh, in our community. Oftentimes when you think about sex trafficking, oftentimes it's a lifetime movie where it's young white women who are being trafficked and we can sort of mobilize behind that because this notion, well, it's not supposed to happen to young women like that. I mean, certainly anybody can be victimized in that way, but the reality still is that black girls, uh, if you look at the FBI statistics, they are much more disproportionately vulnerable uh, to sex trafficking and just kind of disappearing. There's just these missing girls in our community that nobody even notices are gone or why they're gone. And we're suspecting that sex trafficking may be uh, at the foundation of that. And that's my interest in pornography is sort of related to that uh, because oftentimes in porn, it's normalized. It's you know, they'll even use the language of, of pimping and pornography that they're turned out or pimp my black teen or something like that. Uh, so I think we have to start having some critical conversations about if you're being immersed in that type of pornography, uh, which says that this kind of behavior, this is a population that you can sort of victimize in this way. And it's not really victimization. Uh, and then girls are watching this and saying, well, this is just normalized and this is the way this this is and this is a quick, easy way to make money. I can see where vulnerable girls would be lured into that and victimized and then we just don't even notice it as a problem. Mm. So so when thinking about this problem, you know, because we talked about a, lo- a lot of problems, you know, there's, you know, the sexual violence that happens in relationships or 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 more broadly, like you said, you know, between strangers there, you know, is pornography um, and how that shapes um you know, they have consequences for not just young girls, but also like, you know, Ty mentioned uh, young men oh, yeah. um, and also sex trafficking. So it's kind of those are a lot of problems. Um, and I feel like the underlying theme is that there's a culture around sex and around um, th- the way we think about sex. And so how do we change the culture um, around these things in order to, you know, I guess a change or Im- improve um, incidents or, you know, related to sexual assault and the negative images that we see in the media? I think several ways. I would really like to see us start having conversations in our community, one about healthy sexuality and what that looks like. Um, And I would like to see there be more comprehensive sex education. Again, I think that goes back to history and that deeply in that deeply rooted history, because we were so overly sexualized. I think we kind of coped with that by just saying we're going to not talk about sex at all. And so then you get young people out in the world operating with without having this basic understanding about their bodies, how their bodies work, and what a healthy sexuality can look like. Uh, So I think that's part of the discussion. I think also just having conversations about sexual violence in general 
uh, and breaking the stigma of talking about that because it thrives on shame, secrecy, and silence. Uh, and perpetrators know that victims aren't going to be willing to disclose. And I think challenging these media images if they're offensive or problematic and saying that we're not going to uh, consume this. I know that there's a movement now just about like the R. Kelly situation and people saying, should we be supporting performers if they have had a history of any kind of sexual violence? Um, And so having those conversations and challenging ourselves about the media that we consume. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's real. You know, even as I have grown and matured over the years, you know, and things that I felt like, you know, didn't see a problem with when I was younger. And then as I got older Mm -hmm. and learned things, you know, just being a male and like these things were not right. And some of the things I I supported was just not right. And even though I Mm -hmm. may not personally experience or or have been victimized, um, I now am more conscious of what I support, what I listen to, you know, even with things like certain music or certain things that people betray. I feel like if it's about violence, if it's against women, I, I, I stay away from it, you know, or I don't put my money towards it. Um, and I think, you know, those kind of, like you just said, like those kind of small steps also will have lasting impacts, um, just raising, raising conscience. And I also just think too, just looking at overall the, how we are as a you know society now and, and much, very much media oriented with the internet. And, mm-hmm. and so sometimes people, you know, think get caught up with things like, 10 years ago and a tweet will come up or, you know, and I feel like mm. we also need to give people the, the space to, to show that they've matured or that they've learned or like, you know, they realize cause we've all made mistakes in our past. So we may have said or did things, but I think that's important too, because I think sometimes people are scared to admit things or do stuff cause they feel like the, the ridicule or the backlash is going to be extreme. Um, but I think we're, as we all are learning, we realize like, Oh yeah, this wasn't right. And now I would like to change it, but we shouldn't be so focused on if they're trying to change, we shouldn't be so focused on what they did in the past, you know, as much, you know, of course it could depend by each case, but overall I just see that, you know, when something pops up a tweet, (laughs) everybody's ready to cancel. Oh no, no, no. But you know, let's see what they're saying. Let's see if they really understood the ramifications of the actions and if they're trying to change. Cause I think that's important too. Right. And it, it also requires, Men to challenge other men. Mm. I think that men are going to be having to have conversations with other men and also looking at how we socialize men as well, because men are not only raping women, they're also raping other Mm. men. And so sort of what is at the foundation uh, of that and understanding that a rape culture hurts men as much as it does women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, Dr. West, I think, you know, I've learned a lot in this conversation. Really appreciate you coming and take time to talk with us. And I'm sure our listeners are want to follow you and remain engaged with the work you're doing and follow up on it. So, you know, um, are there any websites or social media pages that you like to promote so that they can stay in, and follow you? Yeah, definitely. Um, always feel free to go to my website, drcarolynwest.com. Uh, DR, no period, carolynwest.com, drcarolynwest.com. And all my articles and book chapters are downloadable there. I try to make as much information as possible available for people. Um, 
And also I noticed in Essence Magazine, the November issue, uh, they did a nice section on the Me Too movement and just healing from sexual violence. And I think at the end of the day, we all need to just get more educated about the topic. I would like to see that happen. And I also, one thing that didn't come up in this conversation as much as I would like is to make sure that we think about who's missing from this conversation. Uh, We all live at the intersection of multiple forms of oppression, particularly African-American women. And I gave an interview with the New York Times recently after the Kavanaugh hearing, and I just said, as hard as it was for Dr. Ford to come forward, what about the poor woman? Uh, or the woman who's living in an urban area, or the young woman, or the transgender um, people who are or queer, or who don't who or don't fit neatly into this like kind of gender binary. What happens to their the immigrant woman? What happens to their experiences? They are particularly invisible and we they're more vulnerable and then more invisible. So we need to really be reaching out to um, people who would oftentimes be overlooked and uh, asking about their experiencing their experiencing their experiences and making room for their voices to be heard in this discussion. No, I agree. I agree. I I agree. Um, This was a really awesome conversation. Um, We really appreciate you taking the time. Um, And yeah, I I hope people follow up on your work um, and everything you're doing because it's really awesome. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for you and all the work that you've been doing. Thank you. Yo, yo, Dev, what's up? What do you think about Dr. West? today's combo I, I thought it was a really good conversation I you know I appreciated her willingness and openness to just answer like all of our questions so for our mm-hmm. listeners we usually prepare questions beforehand but there were a lot of just questions that kind of came up curiosities that came up and you know I just appreciate like her knowledge on the subject to be able to like you know answer all of our random unprepared questions um you know without blinking an eye and I just thought it was a really good conversation overall Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it was great. She's definitely very knowledgeable on this topic. You know, even just uh, I just realized that <clears throat> my um, when my major professor at Purdue, uh, when she passed away, her husband gave me like a lot of her old books. And one of the books that was sitting on my bookshelf right now is Violence in the Lives of Black Women, uh, the book that <laughs> Dr. West uh, wrote and co-edited and edited. Um, so it's kind of crazy how just things, you know, come full circle around sometimes in, in, in the, the strangest ways. Yeah, that's so awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to say um, the, the question or conversation about disclosure and the factors that shape that, particularly within a black community, you know, I think it's so important, you know, like you you know, like the question um, was posed, like, why aren't women believed? Why does it take so long? Why don't people come forward? And when I think about the prevalence of sexual assault, so she mentioned the numbers, like one in seven, I think, for women and one in 71 for men. Um, I have just been a, you know, I've been 
a part of and have had access to conversations among like different groups of black women. And, you know, it's not one or two here or there. It's like over the years, I've been, you know, privy to some conversations about women who have experienced sexual assault and violence, you know, a lot of it, which happened before the age of 18, you know, sometimes the perpetrator was a family member and how there are lots of women, probably women in your life that you don't even realize have experienced something like this. And it's just something that they will probably forever carry with carry with them and not tell anyone. And it's it's those conversations have happened far too many times for me to believe that it's just like, oh, it's just a coincidence. Like, no, I think there are a lot of people who are carrying around things with them that they, you know, they should feel shame, although they should not. But, you know, they're carrying around these these stories, these experiences, and we'll never hear about them. And we'll probably never have an accurate number, not for women. And I, like I said, certainly I don't believe for men because I'm pretty sure there are men that have experienced the exact same thing, but because of, I feel like the addict stigma associated with um, sexual assault and how it might connect to what they might feel like stigma around their manhood or something like that. I feel like there are probably even more men who will not disclose. Um, and Ty, you actually mentioned a really interesting point about uh, Charlemagne not even realizing it until like a couple years ago that it was sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's common. Um, I just think the way, just uh, I think there's com- more conversation needs to be had, difference between men and women. And, and I think how we are socialized in many ways to, to view sex and and sexual behavior um and I, I remember just Charlemagne saying that you know he didn't feel like anything was wrong with it uh the situation um and it, it was an older person he said whatever she was doing it felt good to him right um and so it's like that whole situation just he didn't realize until he got older and I think that those things are also just how men think about situations like oh I'm not getting nobody's violently attacking me or you know, this doesn't hurt, um, so it should be okay. Uh, I usually have to be more more aware and open with those kind of conversations. I think, too, that um, overall, you know, with just thinking about my life and, and growing up and um, like, like we kind of mentioned in the interview, just like watching things like BET Uncut, right? And, you know, of course, have friends we talk about, we laughed about it, videos like Nelly's Tip Drill and stuff like that, that, you know, will premiere and be on constant replay on that, on those kind of platforms. Um, but had I also just, uh, you know, just affected how we viewed women growing up as a, as a young man, as a teenager, really, right? Uh, and how that plays a role of kind of what we expected if we would go out to parties or go out to clubs and, you know, what kind of women we expected to see and, and be around and try to talk to. Um, like that stuff, just like her, her research, Dr. West's research really does, um, it's profound in many ways because it does influence us. You know what I'm saying? It's it's what we're seeing and it, what would have been the case if there was, like we said in the interview, more of a balancing act. And I saw, you know, those images like on Tip Drill, but still just as many other images uh, that were more positive or less stereotypical. And then, you know, how would I have navigated that growing up as a young, as a teenager um, in these situations and my expectations of how I viewed women. Um, 
you know, I think it's all, I think it's all fascinating and interesting. And I think one of the things that you mentioned too, is the fact that, you know, disclosure, non-disclosure, one of the reasons why, you know, those things are highly unreported and why we can't rely on the data. I tell this to my students all the time. Like when you look at like FBI statistics and they use this measure called the uniform crime report and it's, it drastically, severely underestimates crimes dealing with sexual assault. And the reason why is because how they collect the data, they only collect data on crimes in which an arrest was made, right? And in most of these mm. interpersonal, intimate, sexual, violent crimes, what have you, sexual assaults, there's not, there's not an arrest made. And so police are not, people are not calling the police one for various different reasons. Most of the time, it's probably because they're living with the person or somebody in close proximity to them. Um, and so when you see these things in the news or you hear about like sexual assault data, and, and especially if it's coming from the FBI, I mean, you just should, you should just throw that those numbers out because they're drastically underestimated uh, the realities of how many women are going through this and how often it happens. And if those numbers were really truly reported, um, I think, you know, it would be alarming. There's this documentary that I show um, to my students and I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, It's, um, what is it called? It has to do with like sexual assault on college campuses. Have you ever seen it, Mm -hmm. Dad? I haven't, but, you know, maybe we can figure it out and link it. Yeah, we'll link it. I can't think of the name of it right now, so we'll definitely link it. Uh, But I always show like 30 minutes or 40 minutes of it to my students. And it just also shows how college campuses intentionally work really hard, many of them, some of the best ones, to not report sexual assaults and, in fact, allow the, the perpetrators of these crimes to stay on campus you know, with very little disciplinary actions, uh, because if these things get formally reported, then that it becomes public information. And then, you know, that makes the school look bad. So they try to throw a lot of these things under the cover um, and under the rug. And it's a, it could be a major issue as well. So we're de- I'm definitely going to plug that because it's really eye opening, too, because many people send their kids to school thinking it's a safe space, thinking they're going to be protected. But the amount of sexual assault that happens on these college campuses are uh, should be addressed more, too. No, I absolutely agree. And I I can definitely see that happening. And there was also um, so Betsy DeVos was actually wanting to like uh, make some changes to like Title IX, you know, as it relates to sexual assault and violence, because like she said, she wanted to be more fair to, you know, both both sides. But essentially, she wanted to be more fair to potential uh, perpetrators of uh, sexual assault and violence. I'll uh, also link an article about that because, you know, she it, there was kind of a backlash because, you know, it's, it's, it's so regressive. Oh, my goodness. Um, no, it is. I I just yeah I was about to say that I would also love to you know maybe we need to uh have a conversation with a uh, a license like sex therapists or or sex experts because one of the things she mentioned is like you know cultivating like healthy mm-hmm. sexualities and uh, having healthy conversations about it. And one of the things that you mentioned, and I, I won't lie, is something that I have thought about. Um, have you ever heard of the term incel? No. Incel? It's like involuntary celibate or something like that. Um, and they talked about how there's like this increase in like male incels. Like they're like young um, men 
who, you know, should be have, you know, healthy relationships, but they are in their basements. You know, they are pretty much are addicted to the Internet, addicted to pornography, and they aren't having healthy sexual relationships with mm. women. Um, and I'm just like, I don't I don't want to raise someone like that, you know, with the mm. Internet and, you know, Kids have iPads, they have cell phones, they have computers. You know, we really have to be careful about what our children are taking in because those images can affect, you know, not only the girls, but it can affect, you know, the boys. Like you said, you know, the FBI profiles of like who's actually committing these things. And it's just kind of like, I don't want that to be Mm -hmm. my child. And it's, it's an increasing thing, not just in the United States, but I also I think I heard it was happening in like Japan or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, yeah, it, yeah. it's increased exposure, things with the Internet, some things just unprecedented. We couldn't prepare for. And so I think we do have to put up some parameters and protections as far as like with, with our youth and how impressionable they are in these in these images and how it can be impact them in a lot of major ways. So. Yeah, I think having more conversations on that would be great. We, we can, uh, if you guys know anybody and our listeners, let us know, you know, uh, for sure. If anybody that talks about these things, sex experts, healthy sexual relationships, anything along those lines, um, shoot them our way. We'll definitely uh, try to contact them and get them on the show. Yeah. And you never know. Are you that somebody? <laughs> Are you that somebody? You, you might be. I'll be careful with those credentials. I right? <laughs> Somebody trying to come over here and talk about their self-proclaimed sex expert. Now we will be checking credentials. We will Google you. <laughs> having having us looking bad interviewing somebody. Yeah, just because you watch yeah, a lot of porn, you're you a sex expert. Oh my goodness! We, we gonna Google we you. Gonna we gotta like We do you. every every person, so be ready for that. Up your line because we will call you out too. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's hilarious. Um, but no, it was a good conversation. <sighs> the name of the documentary, by the way, is The Hunting Ground. I looked it up, The Hunting Ground. So, okay. so check that out. Um, but other than that, again, we'd like to thank Dr. West for joining us and all the work that she does. Um, for all of you, we know we'll put all the links up on the website, www.blackandhighlydangerous.com. Continue to follow us on social media, on Twitter, f- Facebook, and Instagram at, at BHD Podcast. Um, follow us, uh, uh, review us, review, rate us on iTunes, continue to do that. Uh, we appreciate that. We've been getting more and more support doing that, um, as well. And, um, oh, share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies. And as always continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. <laughs>